Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Talk with Francesca. My website is talkwithfrancesca.com for upcoming shows and other cool stuff. This portion of Talk with Francesca is sponsored by Terramia Restaurante in the North End. Absolutely the best food. You've got to go there. All right, this might just be your lucky day. I'm giving away two tickets to Martha's Vineyard aboard Sea Streak. Sea Streak. I can't talk this morning. Out of New Bedford. To grab your tickets, be the fifth emailer at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. That email, again, is info at talkwithfrancesca.com. So jump on your computers now. Last week, I gave away two tickets to Tyler Merritt. He and his new bride will be on their way to Martha's Vineyard soon. So enjoy, Tyler. All right, we're going to be discussing girls and sex. So before we start, parents, you might not find the conversation appropriate for young children. Why is it that at a time when women graduate from college at higher rates than men and are closing the wage gap, aren't young women satisfied with their most intimate relationships? If so, if so much has changed for girls in the public realm, why hasn't more changed in the private one? What if girls understood that their sex drives mattered as much as boys? What if hookups took place sober? That and more is what we're going to be discussing on today's show with Peggy Ornstein, author of Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Good morning, Peggy, and welcome back to Talk with Francesca. Thank you, Francesca. So it seems every generation thinks that things have gotten more complicated. Um, but really, with this hookup culture, the sexual playing field seems a little bit slanted. I mean, do girls even have a chance? Well, you know, actually some girls... Um that I talked to wanted to come in and tell me that they really liked hookups. So it's not quite as slanted as we think, though that said, I think it's important. Well, first of all, we have to back up and say, what's a hookup? I was going to ask, yeah, exactly. What's a hookup? Yeah, what so, is a hookup? Because it's an intentionally um, uh, uh, ambiguous word, and it can mean anything, basically. It can mean anything from kissing to oral sex to intercourse. We have no idea what it means. And kids themselves don't know what it means when they say it. So they tend to overestimate um, the activity that their friends are engaged in. So that said, um, hookups tend to be something that are engaged in um, while drunk. And uh, what is different with today's culture than um, previously, whereas, you know, kids didn't invent casual sex, obviously. But what has changed is the idea that sex ought to proceed rather than arise out of intimacy as being kind of the normalized way that you engage. So dating is kind of like the last thing you do mm -hmm. um, rather than the first thing that you do for, for the most part. And some girls would say to me, um, look, I don't want to have a boyfriend. I am focusing on myself. I want to... Um, focus on my studies, I want to hang out with my friends, this suits me just fine. And other girls found it, you know, unhygienic or mm -hmm. just depressing. And what, but they all had to, whether they opted in or opted out of hookup culture on college campuses and increasingly in high school, they had to define themselves and their sexuality in relationship to it. 
You know, Peggy, I'm wondering whether it's just the age group that you interview, which I guess are what girls between 15 and 20. Yeah. Because, you know, I have a number of um, single girlfriends Mm -hmm. and um, they are, you know, they they do the, the, the online dating thing. Yeah. And they frequently talk about the three date rule. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You laughed. You must. Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm not so sure it's just the, the, the young girls. I mean, of course, you know, you'd like to think women in their, their 40s are a little bit more mature, can handle it mentally a little bit better. But but nonetheless, it, it seems that that's kind of the way it goes. They go out on a date. You know, they meet the guy. They have coffee. They have a glass of wine. You know, the next date is, you know, let's go have dinner or whatever. And it's expected that that second and definitely by the third date, you're, you're uh, hooking up, I guess, so you'd call it. Uh, and I, I actually have an interesting story, um, not to get off, veer off onto the topic, because I... But or, or change the age group that we're actually talking about. But um, a friend of mine had gone out with a guy, and she really, you know, wanted to. She wanted to get to know him. Not a, you know, <laughs> not a, not a completely off thing to want to do. Well, anyway, on their quote unquote seventh date, he told her, you know, we're on our seventh date. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is we're on our seventh date. Well, what are you trying to say? So, you know, I, I'm not so convinced that it, it's just these young girls. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I, that may well be true. I think what, what I wanted to talk about in the book for girls was to clarify what they were and probably weren't likely to get from a hookup. I, you know, I'm, I didn't feel like I was there to say this is how you should have sex. You should have it, you know. As a one-night stand, you should have it in a three-year relationship, whatever. That, that's not really my mm-hmm. job. But I did want to say that when you um, are in a culture that, that you know, prioritizes drunken hookups, what you're likely to get from that experience is um, you know, a, conqu- a feeling of conquest, maybe, a feeling of that you were desirable for a little while, a war story to tell your friends the next day, a warm body. What you're not likely to get as a young person particularly is practice with the tools that you need mm-hmm. in order to have good sex or in order to create intimacy. So I just wanted young women for whom this is presented as the most fun and the best option and the way to go to have the information so that they could make a decision. You know, if what you want is like, you know, an adrenaline rush, then that's what you'll get. You'll get what you want. Mm -hmm. If what you want is good sex, you're not going to get that in the drunken hookup. Mm -mm. Peggy, you interviewed more than 70 young women between between what, the ages of 15 and 20, right? Mm -hmm. So what did you really discover in the interviews about the lack of pleasure for girls as well as regret? Well, you know, one thing that was really interesting was these girls were all either college-bound or in college, and they were incredibly smart. And if I was um, talking to them about their, you know, their, their educational goals, their professional goals, their extracurricular activities, anything like that, I would have walked away so impressed because they were, you know, they were leaning in all over the place. Mm-hmm. But in their personal lives, 
they were toppling. So they felt entitled to engage in sexual behavior, but not so much entitled to enjoy it. And part of what I talk about in the book is what I call the psychological clitoridectomy that we perform on girls in this country. So when, when we have our, our baby girls and our baby boys, we tend to name all the body parts on boys. So at least we'll say, you know, here's your pee-pee, we'll say something. Mm-hmm. But with girls, we tend to go right from navel to knees. And so we don't name anything in the genital region. So, it's, you know, how do you make something unspeakable? You don't name it. Mm-hmm. Then they go into their puberty education classes, and they find out that boys have erections and ejaculations, mm-hmm. and girls have unwanted pregnancies and periods. Actually, not in the other order. Um, but, and, and then, you know, they see that, that diagram of the internal... Uh, reproductive organs that looks kind of like a steer head and we never say vulva we never say clitoris no surprise when uh, that only fewer than half of girls age 14 to 17 have ever masturbated and then they go into partnered encounters and we expect that somehow they will feel some sense of entitlement some sense of equality some sense of ability to articulate their needs and desires and limits and have those met and you know I, I talk about it I use this phrase that I heard from a psychologist at University of Michigan called intimate justice and that's this idea that um, just like you know who does the dishes in your house or who vacuums the rug that sex can be political and we have to ask these questions about who's entitled to engage in an experience who's entitled to enjoy it who is the primary beneficiary and how each partner defines good enough and those are, as you, you know, said earlier, those are really tricky questions for us as adult women. But for girls in their early formative experiences, you know, I just, too often those early experiences are something that a girl has to get over. And I think that that needs to change. And, and you um, have a young daughter, is that right? I do. I have a daughter who's going to be 13 in a couple months. So did that did that kind of give you the impetus to, to write this book? Oh, and... yeah. <laughs> How did yeah, I, guess I mean, that? as a parent, you know, <laughs> yeah. you look, you, I, I was hearing, I have a lot of friends who have older kids, and I was hearing stories about hookup culture. I was hearing stories about binge drinking. I was hearing stories about sexual assault. And as a parent of a, of a younger girl, my, you know, reaction was sort of to say, I don't want to hear about it. You know, don't, don't tell me. It's, you know, I don't want to know. But, you know, Francesca, parenting from ignorance and fear, Mm. Not the best strategy. No, no. And, you know, it's funny, in this in this age of helicopter parenting, you know, the mothers and fathers, you know, they don't even have any ideas what, you know, really what their daughters are sexually up to, you know, yeah. or how they're feeling about it. So, so how do these girls feel about themselves? I mean, I would well, think, I, I wouldn't be one bit surprised. You know, there's... <laughs> There's so many young girls, it seems, on antidepressants. I'm talking like 16, 17-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know when I first noticed it, but I did. And and I remember saying to myself when I, I started to notice, like, what the heck? I mean, how, what, all these girls are suddenly depressed? Are they biologically depressed? I mean, where did this all come from? Or is does this have anything to do with this hookup that we're talking, this hookup generation we're talking about, could it be something like that? Well, I think it's, you know, they're in a complicated and contradictory landscape where they're constantly being given mixed messages. So if you take, for instance, 
you know, a real um, through line for me from my last book, which was Cinderella Ate My Daughter, which was about how the mm-hmm. pink and pretty sparkly culture told girls that how they look was more important than who they are, um, really led to the opening of this book, which is all about the culture of hot and the tyranny of hot and the way that girls are sold this idea that hot precedes everything. You know, you can't be anything unless you are first hot. And hot is this very narrow, commercial, superficial idea of attractive and sexy that tells girls that how their body looks to other people is more important than how that body feels to themselves. And girls would, you know, would talk about that and really it was it was complicated for them. You know, they would they would say things like one girl showed me a picture of herself going out for a party and she was wearing, you know, the little crop top and mini skirt and high heels and she said, I'm proud of my body and I never feel more liberated than when I'm dressed in skimpy clothing. But then a few minutes later she told me that a year earlier she wouldn't have worn that outfit because she was 25 pounds heavier, and what she said was, I was I'd be afraid that some jerky guy would call me the fat girl. <laughs> and so I said, well, look, so who gets to be proud of which body mm. under what circumstances, and how liberating is it really if ridicule lurks just around the corner? Exactly. So they're always trying to find exactly. this, yeah. this ground, you know, this ground where they can stand. And as one girl said to me, too, you know, about girls and sex, that the opposite of a negative is usually a positive, but when you're talking about girl sexuality, the opposite is it's two negatives. You're either a slut or you're a prude. And so they're always engaged in this balancing act of trying to figure out where they stand, and that's very difficult. So it seems then that with all the, the time the girls are sort of impersonating this sexiness, mm-hmm. what really appears to be absent from their, their life, their universe, is this real sense of what they want. Yeah. And acting on it. Is that, would you say that's right? I'd say that's exactly right. Being able to under... I mean, just saying to a girl... What do you want out of this experience? What do you want from tonight? What would feel good to you? Those are such radical questions, and they don't ask themselves. I mean, the, the, one of the things I, I talk about kind of extensively is oral sex and the ways that it goes pretty much one way, you know, girl to guy. And, and when it goes the other way, it does sometimes go the other way, but that, that's a totally different um, situation. That's, that's intimate. That involves trust. The other way they talk about is not sex, not intimate. And I heard so many stories of, you know, non-reciprocal oral sex that I started to say to girls, what if you were with a guy and every time you were with him, he asked you to go get him a glass of water from the kitchen and he never offered to get you a glass of water. Or if he did, it was like, you know, "Mm, well, do you want me to, uh," you know, like very begrudging. You would never stand for it. And they would, that would crack them up. They would laugh and they would say, well... I never thought about it that way. And, <laughs> well, maybe you should. Yeah, maybe you should think about why you're more willing to perform a sex act on somebody than get them a glass of water repeatedly. And, you know, again, it's this idea that girls don't, aren't, talk, we don't talk to them. And they consider it impersonal, right? They consider it impersonal. They actually consider it, it a way to distance themselves. Oh, that's, that's, no, that's interesting. I'm going to keep my mouth shut on that one. Um, no pun intended. Talk. If you're just tuning in this morning, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Peggy Ornstein, and we are discussing her book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Peggy, I'm curious, when do these girls actually consider 
losing or when yeah when do they consider sort of they have lost their virginity if they're if they're not uh when you know when i was younger you lost your i can't even talk I, I, you know i'm stumbling over this conversation you want to talk about virginity i get it i get it yeah like you know when, when do they you know when i when i was younger you lost your virginity when you had intercourse I yeah mean, and that's, that's and that's, that's kind of it was all kind of one and the same yeah and but you know the thing is um that's still true, but I don't think that that definition is serving us very well because when we def- when we confront not that intercourse is not a big deal, of course it's a big deal, mm. but it's not the only big deal. And we when we confine our conversation about sex and about virginity to intercourse, we participate in this idea that everything else that they're doing is not sex. And if it's not sex, particularly oral sex, it's not subject to the same rules around responsibility, respect, consent, mutuality, you know, all of those things. So we're actually doing girls a disservice by focusing on that. And it also denies the experience of gay and bisexual teenagers. And I had a really interesting discussion with um, a a gay girl who had never had uh, heterosexual intercourse. And I said, how did you know when you had lost your virginity? And she said, yeah, you know, that's, that's a good question. I had to Google that. <laughs> and Google didn't have an answer. Um, <laughs> no. And uh, I said, well, what did you decide? And she kind of hemmed and hawed, and she said, you know, I decided it was when I had my first orgasm with a partner. Oh. That was when I had lost my virginity. Ah. And I thought, yeah, yeah, what if that was, I mean, imagine how it would shift our ideas about sexuality if that was the definition of Virginity, And, you know, again, not to say that intercourse isn't a big deal, but it creates a situation where we're telling kids that sex is a race to a goal and that that goal is going to somehow make them an adult, as opposed to being a pool of experiences about warmth, closeness, affection, mutuality, sensuality, touch, Mm -hmm. you know, sensation. So, you know, what I like to say to kids is who is really more sexually experienced the person who makes out, you know, kisses a partner for three hours and, experience, and experiments with erotic tension and sensation and communication, or the person who gets wasted at a party, hooks up with a random in order to, you know, have intercourse so they can lose their virginity before college. Um, Peggy, I'd like to take a short break, but when we come back, I'd like to talk about, um, what's his name, Ver- Vernacchio? He did a... Vernacchio. Yes, yeah, he Al did, Vernacchio. Yeah, he did My favorite a, guy. Yeah, he did a... Uh, TED Talk, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit when we come back, but we do need to hear from our sponsors, so stay with us here. We'll be right back. The highly specialized staff at Peak Performance Physical Therapy in Swampscott has taken the collaborative approach to treating patients with just one goal, to get you the highest level of physical fitness. So what really makes them different? The staff is highly specialized so that you get the personal service you need. They are one of the only facilities on the North Shore with on-site aquatic physical therapy. Call Peak Performance Physical Therapy at 781-586-0550 today or visit peakperformancept.net. I did not I couldn't have made a better decision. 
Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top 10 Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723-6733 or visit us at AnticoFornoBoston.com. Are you bouncing back from an injury, trying to manage chronic illness, or just interested in living longer? New Harmony Center for Health and Wellness in Beverly can help you heal. They are an acupuncture and integrative medicine center. They work with your doctor on one hand and with healing complementary therapies on the other. Whether you want a new harmony or simply explore thriving wellness, New Harmony Center for Health and Wellness can help you. Visit their website today at newharmonywellness.com or call 978-922-3030. If you're anything like me, your dog is no different than your child. That's why when I can't take him with me, I bring him to the Beach Dog Doggy Daycare at 96 Newburyport Turnpike in Newberry. Specializing in the care of small dogs, the small dog with the big dog attitude, there is no other daycare specializing in small dogs only. That's why I take my dog to the Beach Dog Doggy Daycare. And they offer free pickup and drop-off services to the local Newburyport area with homestyle playrooms with sofas, blankets, and rugs, and and dogs group daily by not only their social personality, but mood of the day. Where else could I possibly take my little guy? Visit the Beach Dog, dogdaycare.com. I have found the best kept secret on the North Shore and just in time for spring. Family owned and operated Labranti Tile and Stone. They've been in business for over 30 years and they do all their own installations. You'll work with Jay at their showroom in Peabody who will color coordinate your dream space and Gerald and Pat will handle all the expert installations. Now doing complete bathroom remodels including ripouts, tiles, vanity tops, glass doors and even mirrors. So visit them at 134 Newberry Street in Peabody or call them at 978 536 Zero zero, or visit Labranti Tile and Stone.com. Let's go, girls. All right, we are back, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I am speaking with Peggy Ornstein about her book, new book, Girls and Sex. Welcome back, Peggy. Thank you. So Let's talk about this TED Talk for a little bit because it's very, you know, this whole sort of um, comparison to baseball and sex. It was it was really kind of it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, and um, and you know, I I listened to it the other day. I thought, wow. So I would love your thoughts on yeah. that. And yeah, I'm very. I think that it's if we can do one thing, we can shift that metaphor. And I I was sitting in on a sex ed class as part of the. Um, reporting and at one, this great class and at one point one of the boys raised his hands and said you know I never thought of it before but in that baseball metaphor mm-hmm. in baseball there's winners and losers mm-hmm. so who's supposed to be the loser in a sexual encounter and I mean honestly it's not even two teams the girl is actually the field in the in the baseball metaphor if you think about it right so right to, yeah right she's yeah. the field she yeah. doesn't even she doesn't even have a voice at all so what Alvernacchio talks about is shifting that metaphor to pizza. And 
here's how it works. So pizza is something that, you know, you ask somebody, do you want to go out to pizza? Maybe you feel like pizza, maybe you don't feel like pizza. If you go out for pizza, you talk about, you know, you negotiate the toppings. And maybe, you know, you like mushrooms and I like pepperoni, so we go halvesies. Or we have mushrooms this time or pepperoni next time. Or if I keep insisting on pepperoni and you keep kosher, you're going to stop having pizza with me. And <laughs> You know, it's it's all about having a shared pizza is a shared mutual experience where everybody is invested in both people having a good time. It's a mm-hmm. you know, it's a communal effort mm-hmm. and it's so it's you can stretch it anywhere that metaphor. And even somebody suggested to me the other day this really interested me. I never thought about this. But a couple of days ago somebody said, "You know, girls often will say the fallback for girls is to say whatever you want, right? Girls mm-hmm. often don't want to express an opinion. Mm-hmm. So if you say, like, what movie do you want to see, they'll go, I don't know, whatever you want to see. Well, girls, you know, you need to have an opinion on the pizza toppings. Yeah, you get, yeah. Right? Yeah, you need to have an opinion. Yeah. But it's another way place you can go with that metaphor. What happens if you don't have an opinion? You end up with pepperoni and you keep kosher. You know, it's not going to work. <laughs> so it's, it, there's so many ways that you can talk about it where it's, it's a level it's a, it's I, whenever I talk about it, I'm ta- right now on the phone. My palm is up, and I'm making circles in a horizontal way because it's a level, circular, mutual mm-hmm, idea, mm-hmm, as opposed to the up and down, round the bases idea. That, well, um, yeah, I mean, first you know, base, second base, yep. third, I which mean, is a vertical, I, you know, a vertical notion and an idea that there's a goal. What happens? You know, there's no room in the baseball metaphor for. Oh, you know what? I got to second base, and I kind of like it here. I think I'm going to stay. Stay a while. No, you must progress, right? Right. And that is not the right metaphor for how we learn, you know, how we want young people or even old people Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. learn about this nuanced, amazing, broad-ranging thing we call human sexuality. You know, I think feminist mothers really kind of dropped the ball. I mean, I think they replaced messages of being safe, in which, I mean, is, is certainly a very important thing. Um, but but really, you know, they really, that was, that, that's what it's been, you know, make sure that you stay safe, you don't get pregnant, yeah. you don't get any diseases. And again, that's really important. Right, but it's not the only thing that's important. And can, now we talk about consent, if we're really modern. Um, but yeah, I mean that, and, and that would have been me too. And I, I, we, you know, one thing that I looked at was comparing uh, the Dutch to Americans, mm-hmm. and particularly. So I looked at studies that compared Dutch college students to American college students. So they were very similar demographically. It wasn't the broad swath of the American population, and. The girls uh, were talking about their early experiences, and Dutch girls on every measure, whether it's fewer negative consequences like pregnancy or regret or disease or more positive consequences like delaying intercourse, knowing your partner well, being able to articulate your wants, needs, and limits, enjoying the experience, you know, um, uh, better body image, all the things that we want for our girls, the Dutch girls had, the American girls did not. Why do you think that is? Well, they knew why it was. It was because in Dutch society, parents, teachers, and doctors talk to kids from a very early age, very frankly and progressively, about sex. And particularly the parents. The big difference was not that Dutch parents were more comfortable talking about sex, but that American parents, as you suggested, emphasize risk and harm. And Dutch parents frame it as talking about uh, balancing responsibility and joy. 
Mm-hmm. And for me as a parent, Francesca, that was like a lightning bolt. That completely changed how I think about talking about sex with my daughter. Sounds like it's time to pack your bags, huh? So, <laughs> now, you know, Peggy... Wooden shoes. I'm all about the wooden shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the pop culture today, though, you know, I mean, the wearing, the clothes, the, 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 the S&M clothes, you know, the dominatrix clothing, all this short, the, all they need is a whip, right. you know? And, and you know, in, in fairness to now, the parents, I mean, you know, there's so many double-income parents, and they're all working, and I don't know, maybe they, they're not seeing that this is going on. I have no idea idea but um you know this is this is who these girls it seems are emulating yeah well again you know the culture tells them over and over that they have to be hot and there were there was some really interesting um research in colleges out of princeton a while back uh they had noticed that um young women students were not going out for leadership positions in the same rates that it actually the rates of women in leadership had dropped over a decade and when they talked to young women um, they found out that you know it wasn't enough to be qualified. They felt they had to do everything, do everything well, and be perfectly hot while doing it. And that perfectly hot piece, you know, was was a barrier for them. And at Duke, they called it. They did a similar work, and they called it effortless perfection. That they had to be all those things and be beautiful and be hot and look like it was no effort. And at Boston, oh, and I'm forgetting. I'm sorry if it's Boston College or Boston University. I don't want to get it wrong, but one of, one of the other of those, they found that um, uh, young women were graduating with lower self-esteem than when they came in, and that was not true for men. So there's this way that this tyranny of the hot is being imposed on girls, and again, while we have a culture littered with female body parts, we never talk to girls about you know, developing their internal ideas and their internal compass about their sexuality, so as often as not, that confidence comes off with the clothes. And and you know and then when you add alcohol to all of this, yeah, that's that's definitely a match to the fire. Yeah, right. You know, and that's a huge problem. Drink for drink, girls process alcohol very differently. You they know? absolutely do, and and it's not that um, more kids are drinking, but they are drinking more with each episode. So the um, one out of four college women and one out of five high school girls has binged in the last month, with binging being defined as four or more drinks an episode, and the average number of incidents is three, and the average number of drinks per episode is six. So they are drinking a lot, and boys are too. And so you can't, you know, it it would be wrong only to focus on girls drinking, because while girls drinking is certainly what's newer, Mm -hmm. um, boys drinking uh, is, both parties in, in a heterosexual encounter are, uh, are often drunk, and when boys drink, they're less likely to recognize the cue, you know, the cues of mm-hmm. resistance. They're less likely to hear no. Mm-hmm. They're less likely to step in as bystanders. So, you know, it, it really affects, uh, dulls the ability of both girls and boys to um, consent, mm-hmm. to recognize consent, and more than that, even or not more than that, but along with that, to feel. And one of the things that I learned about the hookup culture from a sociologist in um, Los Angeles was that alcohol is endemic to it because not just lubricating, but endemic, needed, because it creates what she called um, a, a compulsory carelessness that they need to feel in order to engage in a hookup. 
Oh, if you just tune in this morning, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Peggy Orenstein, and we're discussing her book, Girls and Sex. We are going to take another short break, and when we come back, we've got some questions. So stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. Tides is beachside dining all year round. Directly on the Haunt Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat no matter what the season. Whether you choose our dining room, a frosty find at our bar, or our sun-drenched deck on the Haunt Beach, we guarantee you great atmosphere with superfood and service. Our menu is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out our drink menu for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and our well-rounded wine list with our state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is the place to watch any big game, too. We have over 20 HD TVs. At Tides, we specialize in casual dining with food that's just delicious, not pretentious. Tides is a fantastic restaurant anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit TidesNahant.com today. I have found the best-kept secret on the North Shore and just in time for spring. Family-owned and operated Labranti Tile and Stone. They've been in business for over 30 years and they do all their own installations. You'll work with Jay at their showroom in Peabody who will color coordinate your dream space and Gerald and Pat will handle all of the expert installations. Now doing complete bathroom remodels including rip-outs, tiles, vanity tops, glass doors and even mirrors. So visit them at 134 Newberry Street in Peabody or call them at 978 536 Zero, zero, or visit LabrantiTileAndStone.com. Our pets are family. That's why I take my dog to Poochie's Dog Grooming in Saugus. I know my furry friend is going from smelling crummy to yummy because Liz and Courtney at Poochie's Dog Grooming really care. Whatever your pet's needs are, be it dematting to extra scissoring or a special bath with essential oils, they have your furry friend covered. So call Poochie's Dog Grooming today at 781-558-5816 or visit PoochieSpa.com, voted number one by their clients on Boston's A-List. The highly specialized staff at Peak Performance Physical Therapy in Swampscott has taken a collaborative approach to treating patients with just one goal, to get you the highest level of physical fitness. So what really makes them different? The staff is highly specialized so that you get the personal service you need. They are one of the only facilities on the North Shore with on-site aquatic physical therapy. Call Peak Performance Physical Therapy at 781-586-0550 today or visit peakperformancept.net. I did and I couldn't have made a better decision. New England winters can wreak havoc on our vehicles. Sometimes it's just not enough to wash and vacuum them. Sometimes a full detail is in order. Do you remember the last time your car or truck was in that pristine condition? Remember how you felt? It's time to get that feeling back again. A full detailing from Tony's Recon can get you back in the driver's seat. Call Tony at 978-590-3693 or visit Tony'sRecon.com. You'll be glad you did. The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com.
listening to Talk with Francesca, and I am speaking with Peggy Ornstein. We're discussing her book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Welcome back, Peggy. Thank you. So, uh, Emma from Danvers says, I have a very open relationship with my 16-year-old daughter. She's in a relationship with an 18-year-old man. I am quite concerned that she is experiencing non-reciprocal sex. Her idea of being in a happy relationship has nothing to do with her sexual entitlement and pleasure. She feels she needs to be silent. I don't know where this is coming from, but I need to find a way to get through to her that this is a two-way street. Where have I gone wrong? I wouldn't fake an orgasm if my life depended on it and have not ever conveyed that her desires are not important. It's interesting how it seems like the parents are taking a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. with with what's going on here when it's really um, the media. Is, yeah, and, and I think, you know, our job as parents has shifted so much in this generation, and, I, and I, I think that we, you know, weren't raised to take this on, and it's been kind of a shock to realize that our one of our biggest jobs as parents is to manage the media monster that's coming at our kids, you know, mm-hmm. from 24-7, mm-hmm. all directions, a million channels, the Internet, everything. Oh, the Internet has been such a game changer. It has been a game changer, and particularly, you know, both pop culture and also porn. You know, one of the things that has really changed in the way that kids learn about sex is that, you know, yeah, you, you know, when we were kids, there was Playboy or whatever, but now 24-7, um, at a much younger age, kids encounter and have accessible to them anything, any sexual act they can think of, mm-hmm. you know, is a click away. And surveys um, have shown that uh, up to 60% of, ki- of college-age kids consult porn in part as sex education oh, you know, to, to see how things fit together. But absent, you know, I mean, if they're not learning it in school, if we're not talking to them as parents, I had girls tell me all the time, you know, I don't know, I didn't know how to perform oral sex. I wanted to be good at it, so I looked it up on porn. I wanted to see how the parts fit together, so I looked it up on porn. So maybe they're just wanting to get it over with rather than enjoy it. Yeah, well, and it shows them, again, an image of a distorted image Mm -hmm. where women are there in order to please men. Yes. You know, where where the ideas of female sexuality are, are crazy wrong, you know, and um, it's just not where we want either our girls or boys to be learning what sex is. And girls, you know, would talk to me about things like they'd say to me, um, my boyfriend wants to know why I don't make the noises that women in porn make. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I got so frustrated, not with them, but, like, yeah. with the idea yeah. that that's where they were getting on. And I said, look, you know, it's a movie, and it has to have a soundtrack. If it didn't have a soundtrack, it would be a silent movie. Right. Right? So. Yeah. They have to make noises for the soundtrack, and they would just—it was like a revelation. They would go, "Oh, oh yeah, yeah." So I think of it that way. So girls are, are definitely—they're having more sex at a younger age. Uh, they're not having more intercourse, but they're—they're they're doing other things more uh, at a younger age. And so, you know, we really have to, as parents, get out front <sighs> in making sure that we're talking to them, so that they will have relationships that are reciprocal that are ethical, that are safe, that are responsible, that are caring. You know, we can, you know, what the Dutch experience shows us is that we can really make a difference in how our kids engage if we're willing to get in there. And I'm not saying that's easy, but, you know, and and it can be mortifying and embarrassing, but, you know, you don't get to choose when to parent. You don't get to not parent because you are embarrassed about it. And if you can't do it, it's okay to build a team, you know, find the, you know, the, the aunt or the uncle or the cousin or the fa- family friend who can, um, 
talk to your child, somebody that your child can talk to and that can talk to them. This book seems like it's, your audience is actually for parents. Well, it's both parents and girls. And what I was going to say earlier about the woman who wrote the question, and is one of the reasons that I wrote this book was so that it could become a neutral space where you could talk about these issues without having to talk about your child's own personal experience or your own personal experience. Because I know, I do, and I'll, I will tell you this because my daughter won't hear this program, one of my main life hacks that I do with her, and especially now that I, that I do this writing, is I'll say, you know, I was giving a talk the other day, and somebody asked this question about, mm. you know, mm. texting or something. And nobody asked the question, but I want to talk to her about it. <laughs> so I'll say, what, you know, they asked, and they want to know what you would tell your 13-year-old child in this situation. <sighs> what would you think that they should say? Ooh. And it's a way of engaging. So does she her. run away from you? Like, no. I don't know, Mom. <laughs> no, she does not. She, okay. When I engage her in that way, mm-hmm. she is becoming you know, the, the expert, the professional, the advisor oh who's gosh. helping me figure out how we talk to kids about these issues. And she's really, she's really eager to, to talk about it. Oh, that's fantastic. And so that really helps us. So that's why I think you know, being able to like, listen to an interview like this mm-hmm. or yeah. to, together or to um, read a book like mine together allows you an opening that's impersonal or mm-hmm. neutral is a better t- way of putting it, I think, where you can say, you know, gosh, these girls with this glass of water you know, metaphor she uses, these girls don't ever seem to think sex is a two-way street. You know, how would you talk to girls so that they can know it's a two-way street? What do they need to know? And that's a way to enlist your daughter or your son in mm-hmm. that conversation without it feeling, you know, too icky and uncomfortable and mm-hmm. revealing for them, too right, vulnerable. Right, right. Hey, this is interesting. I just mentioned this getting it over with thing in here. I've got Joni from Portsmouth says, my daughter seems to be very focused on getting it over with. Um, where is this self-imposed pressure coming from? And more important, what can I do to help her relax with this? Well, again, you know, there's this idea that if you don't um, have intercourse before you go to college, that you are undesirable. And I think, again, questioning what do you want? I mean, what I took a, a few years ago, I took out a friend's child who um, didn't, she didn't feel comfortable talking to her daughter, so she asked if I would. And we went out for lunch, and I knew she had this boyfriend. She was 16. They'd been going out for a while, and her mother suspected that she was thinking about having intercourse. And so we had the discussion about safety. We had the discussion about disease. And I said, but look, you don't have to answer these questions. But I just want to ask you to think about them. Have you ever masturbated? Have you had an orgasm on your own? Have you had an orgasm with your partner? Can you talk to him about what you want and what you need and what you desire and what you don't want? And if you answer no to those questions, why are you, what, you know, what do you want? Why, why are you having intercourse? What's the point exactly? Mm-hmm. And she didn't answer. She just looked very saucer-eyed at me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you that that young woman is now 24, and we talk. I just talked to her yesterday. We talk all the time. We talk about her sex life. We talk about her work. We talk about her her applications to graduate school. You know, and I feel like that that conversation where I just stood up and said, "I am here. You can tell me everything. I am going to. Nothing is going to make me flinch." Was a game changer for us Mm -hmm. and and gave her, let her know that I was always here for her. And it made this relationship that we now have that is a really deep and close relationship 
So I think asking questions like that, like what do you want out of this? Why do you want to do this? What do you think intercourse? Who is it that's imposing this idea that intercourse, regardless of how it feels to you, is this line in the sand between innocence and experience. I have a whole chapter on that in the book, and it would be great for that mother and daughter to read together. Absolutely. And speaking of which, I have uh, three books that I am giving away this morning, and uh, it will be to the 5th, 10th, and the 15th emailer, to info at talkwithfrancesca.com. That Email again is info at talkwithfrancesca.com, and I am giving away Girls and Sex Navigating the Complicated New Landscape by Peggy Ornstein, who I'm talking to right now. Um, here's another one. Marion from Weymouth. My daughter is very cagey about how much sexual activity she has, but I'm gathering that her friends measure their boyfriend's pleasure as a sign of whether the relationship has any future. I've tried to explain to her that at 17, there is no future with the boy she's with. She's much too young. Well... There's two different questions that she's asking there. One is about um, the potential to love when you're a teenager. And I think, you know, kids can love when they're oh, a teenager. Absolutely. And the way that they think of future is not the way we think of future. So the idea that they could have a loving, caring relationship for however long that lasts for them, you know, they're, they're correct that they can do that. But the idea of measuring their satisfaction by their boyfriend's pleasure is something that you see frequently among young women. And in, in research on college-age kids, young women are much more likely to do that. They use male pleasure as the yardstick for their satisfaction. So if he had a good time, I'm satisfied. Whereas boys are more likely to use their pleasure as the yardstick for their satisfaction. So if I had a good time, I'm satisfied. Mm, um, yeah, exactly. So we talk, when, they, when we talk about sexual satisfaction or we talk about good sex, girls, when they talk about good sex, are more likely to use language about absence of humiliation, absence of pain. And when they talk about bad sex, they, talk, they use words like pain, humiliation, um, and boys never use that kind of language, ever. So they have very different ideas when they're going into an encounter of what they want out of the encounter. And we have to kind of disrupt that for girls. And we, see, if we don't give girls any information about what their sexual pleasure might be like or look like, why wouldn't they think that it's all about the boy. Well, and on top of that, I mean, with with the kind of craziness that's going on, like Skype sexing. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, is that what you call it? Skype sexing? Skype, Skype sex? sex? I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it really kind of does turn it into something very dirty. Well, it turns it into something that's a performance for girls. And I think that, they, that that's the message they keep getting, and that's what we keep coming back to in this conversation. A performance, that yeah. girls learn that sex, sex is a performance for them instead of a felt experience. And that is, you know, partly because of what the media tells them and partly because of we, what we don't tell them. Right. Well, and, and now I'm curious. I wonder how many fathers discuss sex with their daughters. And when um, you think about it, because when we were younger, <laughs> right, because when we were younger, I mean, it was the mother that talked to the daughter and the father mm-hmm. that talked to the boys. Do you think that's changed today? No. No, um, no. No, so. no. But, you know, one thing I did that was really interesting was I went to um, a purity ball. Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, it's an evangelical Christian um, thing where, where girls pledge to remain uh, virgins until they enter into a biblical marriage. So, um, mm-hmm. the, and they pledge to their fathers. So it's kind of like a cotillion a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it was not something, you know, the, the message that they had there was not something I agree with. Yeah, but no. what I did, what I was impressed with was that the fathers were 
expressing love for their daughters and talking to them about their values and expectations around sex. Again, I didn't like what those values and expectations were. I thought that they, you know, I know for a fact that that doesn't, abstinence doesn't, preaching abstinence doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I was very moved by the fact that they did it because in my world, in my liberal progressive world, None of the girls that I spoke with, maybe, I shouldn't say none, maybe two or three out of 70, said that their fathers had ever had a conversation with them around these issues. And so, you know, it's as if once we stopped saying don't, that we didn't really talk about what we needed to replace that with. Right, exactly, exactly. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I have another question here. Nancy from Easton is, as my daughter gets ready for college, I have a great concern with the relationship between drinking and sex. Concern that it may replace mutual attraction. She has, She's a great kid and she doesn't drink, but I'm, I'm not so naive to believe that she won't get to a party at school where it's possible for her to drink and be attracted to a boy. Yeah, she's, you know, that's really um, such a smart insight. That's I say those exact words in the book that... Um, drinking has replaced mutual attraction as a reason to have sex. And so the next morning, you know, when you're talking to your friends, it's not like, oh, my gosh, he was so good looking mm-hmm. or I really liked him or anything. It's I was drunk, so I had sex. And I think, you know, we, the, the, that's something that um, when your children are looking at colleges, mm-hmm. something to look into at the schools they're looking at, what is the campus culture like? How much drinking is there? How much hooking up is there? What Are there alternative cultures to that, and what are they? Um, if you're going to be looking at a campus that has a very heavy Greek life, that's really dominated by Greek life, you're going to have a lot more alcohol, a lot more hooking up. Um, if you're at a college without those things, you're not going to have as much of that. You know. So ta- And then on top of that, so that's one thing to talk to your daughter about um, what she wants out of her college social life, and not just look at the academics of a school, but look at the social life as well. And that may help put pressure on colleges to address some of that, because, you know, they're not doing a very good job of that. But, I mean, regardless of whether the school has a lot of it or not as much of it, there's, it's not like it's going to be absent. No, it's not going to be absent. And, and so, in that case, you know, again, talking to your child and letting them know um, what they're likely and not likely to get out of a drunken hookup, what, you know, educating them around alcohol, educating them around sex, because otherwise you're basically just saying, bye, see you, hope you, you know, hope you do okay out there without ever having these conversations. And, you know, it's kind of throwing them to the wolves. Um, If you're just tuning in this morning, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I am speaking with Peggy Orenstein, and we're discussing her book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. And if you are either the 5th, 10th, or 15th emailer to info at talkwithfrancesca.com, you will receive a free book. We have time for, Peggy, I think one more question. Uh, Beth from Marblehead. My daughter is going into 10th grade. I'm worried about the clothing she wears to school. Seems very provocative. What are these girls being sold and why? Well, that's what we've been really talking about. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about. And it's such a complicated knot for girls because, you know, what I think the wrong way to approach it is to say um, you can't, you shouldn't wear that because you'll distract boys. That's been sort of the go-to phrase for a long time. <laughs> if you distract boys, well, that's kind, of, that's kind of the idea, it sounds like, almost, right? Well, I mean, you know, boys can be distracted if you blink your eye anyway. but um, and that Boys will be boys. <laughs> well, that doesn't put any responsibility on boys. I mean, then you have to say, like, at what point do boys um, 
have to take responsibility. Is it when you wear a knee-length skirt? Is it when you wear a burqa? You know, is it when you live in Afghanistan? When do they have to take responsibility for their actions if they're catcalling, if they're grabbing, if they're harassing in school? And why? You know, and that is distracting to girls, and that happens regardless of what girls wear, as they tell me. But so I think that you know that denies male responsibility. So we can't talk about that. But what we, but the way that we can talk about it with girls is exactly what she said. Who is selling you this image? Why are they selling you this image? And the impact of this image, because there's a lot of research that shows that the American, the American Psychological Association did a whole report on this, that um, self-objectification, self-sexualization has a really negative impact on young women, on their cognitive abilities, on their mental health, and on their sexual health. So educating girls not to... Um, you know, demonize other girls or to, to you know, not, uh, to, to, to not wear particular clothing, but to, to question what does that mean? Because as, as one girl said to me, and I'm using her language here, isn't it possible to dress slutty because you feel good about yourself and don't need validation as opposed to because you don't feel good about yourself and do need validation? And I said, okay, maybe, so tell me what the difference is. Right. And she just kind of looked down and said, I don't know. I spend the better part of my life trying to figure that out, and I think it's at the expense of my well-being. Oh, wow. Peggy Orenstein, author of Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. Thanks so much for being with us this morning on Talk with Francesca. It's been a pleasure. My great pleasure. Thanks, Francesca. Okay. All right. Time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. Hope you enjoyed this show as much as I did. See you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week. Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terra Mia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's Restaurant Guide, pastas without compare. And it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terra Mia is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com. Tides is beachside dining all year round. Directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat no matter what the season. Whether you choose our dining room, a frosty find at our bar, or our sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach, we guarantee you great atmosphere with superfood and service. Our menu is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out our drink menu for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and our well-rounded wine list with our state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is the place to watch any big game, too. We have over 20 HD TVs. At Tides, we specialize in casual dining with food that's just delicious, not pretentious. Tides is a fantastic restaurant anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit TidesNahant.com today. If you're anything like me, your dog is no different than your child. That's why when I can't take him with me, I bring him to the Beach Dog Doggy Daycare at 96 Newburyport Turnpike in Newberry. Specializing in the care of small dogs, the small dog with the big dog attitude, there is no other daycare specializing in small dogs only. That's why I take my dog to the Beach Dog Doggy Daycare 
and they offer free pickup and drop-off services to the local Newburyport area with homestyle playrooms with sofas, blankets, and rugs, and dogs group daily by not only their social personality, but mood of the day. Where else could I possibly take my little guy? Visit the Beach Dog, dogdaycare.com. I have found the best kept secret on the North Shore and just in time for spring. Family owned and operated Labranti Tile and Stone. They've been in business for over 30 years and they do all their own installations. You'll work with Jay at their showroom in Peabody who will color coordinate your dream space and Gerald and Pat will handle all of the expert installations. Now doing complete bathroom remodels including ripouts, tiles, vanity tops, glass doors and even mirrors. So visit them at 134 Newberry Street in Peabody or call them at 978 536 Zero zero, or visit LabrantiTileAndStone.com. Are you bouncing back from an injury, trying to manage chronic illness, or just interested in living longer? New Harmony Center for Health and Wellness in Beverly can help you heal. They are an acupuncture and integrative medicine center. They work with your doctor on one hand and with healing complementary therapies on the other. Whether you want a new harmony or simply explore thriving wellness, New Harmony Center for Health and Wellness can help you. Visit their website today at newharmonywellness.com or call 978-922-3030. Have you fallen behind on your mortgage payments? NFCC member agencies provide free and affordable help and meet U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development standards. Call 866-687-6322 or visit mortgagehelpnow.org. Paralyzed Veterans of America, National Service Officers. We've got an entire generation of men and women who have seen war. They're going to need voices. They're going to need advocates. Paralyzed Veterans of America is here to help. We're going to make sure that the Veterans Affairs gives them everything that they're entitled to. Get all the health care they need. Making a person's house adaptable for them to go back home and live. Education benefits. And we also focus on getting them a job. And if something happens to the veteran, then, you know, we're the spouse's advocate. We help our veterans for free. The way that Paralyzed Veterans of America does that is through their national service officers that are located throughout the United States. Our work is important because people depend on us. And they know when they come to Paralyzed Veterans of America, they're going to get the right answer. And they know that we are there for them 24-7. Because we are. Changing lives, building futures. That's Paralyzed Veterans of America. To learn more, visit pva.org. A public service message from Paralyzed Veterans of America. There's no place like home home safely is just a click away. Find the right seat for your little one's age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat for more information. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.